Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey, are you going out for Valentine's Day? I know I am. And if you are, you should look good for your special someone. Uh, and the way to do that is to shave your face. Clean yourself up uh, and make yourself not embarrassing looking. And if you're going to shave your face, you may as well uh, shave it with Harry's razors and shaving products. Uh, Harry's is kind enough to sponsor this show and their stuff is really good. Uh, their starter kit is just $15, and then it has a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. Um, and I used the shave gel, and it was terrific. They were kind enough to send some over, uh, and it's a really good product. I'm not just saying that. Um, and as an added bonus, because you are listening to this podcast, you can get $5 off your first purchase with the code WRITER. After using this code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. Um, it's, you know, they, they have a quality product. It's something you need anyway, so you don't look like a mess. Uh, go to harrys.com right now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code WRITER with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, and enter the coupon code WRITER at checkout for $5 off and start shaving smarter today. This offer is open to new customers. You might also like to know that Harry's uh, has this social mission where they give 1% of their sales and at least 1% of their time to organizations that prepare people for personal and professional success. Um, so that's they're, they're a good company as well as making a good product. Once again, harrys.com and use the code WRITER for $5 off of your first purchase. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Tell us who you are, and uh, where you are, and uh, some of the things you may have worked on that, that people will know. I'm Chris Parnell. I'm the Senior Vice President of Drama Development at Sony Pictures Television. Um, I've been there for almost 11 years now, um, and uh, I've worked on a <laughs> a, a number of shows uh, at Sony. Most recently, um, Outlander for Stars, which I'm really proud of, um, and The Blacklist. Um, worked on uh, uh, just a whole host of development for pitching to these two folks here <laughs> a lot uh, and developing pilots. But um, yeah. All right. Sounds good. And again, we'll dig deeper as we go along. Great. Uh, but Caitlin. I'm Caitlin Foido. I work at ABC Studios. I'm a vice president. Um, I've been there for six months, and prior to that, I was at Fox, uh, the network, for three years. Uh, prior to that, I was at Fox TV Studios for seven years. Um, so I've seen the cable studio side, and now I'm on the broadcast studio side, and I was on the network side for a nice three years. Yeah, and it's worth saying, I think, uh, even before we get to you, Brian, um, just to, you know, really lay this out. There are studios, and for example, Chris mm -hmm. is at Sony, which is a studio. Uh, there are networks. Caitlin, you were at Fox. Mm -hmm. You also worked at Fox TV Studios, right? Yes. Which is the studio. Very confusing. And now you're at ABC Studios. Yes. Uh, and then uh, there's production companies, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well, because you guys deal with those mm -hmm. quite a bit. Uh, but Brian, please introduce yeah. yourself. Brian Seabury. I'm a vice president of drama development at CBS Network. And I've been there for six years. Before that, I was at CBS Studios, to your point, for three years. And before that, I was at two production companies. 
Uh, one was Mark Johnson's production company, and the other was Suzanne Daniels' production company. And I started my career as an assistant and a PA at the WB Network. Oh, no kidding. I didn't go. Uh, and we should mention you may recognize Brian's voice from some of the ATX uh, festival yes. podcasts that we put out. Uh, yes, that is yes, how yes. we know each other, and it is a lot of fun, and everyone should go get their badges. Everyone should go Brian. get their badges for Austin Television <laughs> Festival immediately. It is a celebration of TV, and it... I don't know. It's it's the greatest place for a TV nerd like myself to, <laughs> to hang out. That was I actually kind of want to started start talking about that. You know, you guys are kind of living and breathing TV. Although <laughs> we spent about a half hour before starting talking about all of your children. Besides them, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are deep in TV, um, and I do want to hear about how you got to where you are. And were you all TV nerds growing up? Like, were you the kids, you know, coming in to talk about television every day? And did you have an eye towards, like, getting into this business? Did you realize that this is something that people make, and how do I be a part of that? I actually wasn't, um, really? and I, I might be the exception, so I'll go first. Um, I uh, was a theater geek first and then became a film geek. Um, I actually didn't watch um, a lot of television growing up. I, I could probably count on one hand how many shows I loved in high school. Um, how did my, that theater and film geekdom uh, uh, manifest itself in your life? Um, well, it's funny. I, I liked... I liked acting. I mean, I think a lot of people had that experience when they were young, but I, I really liked to act. And I went to um, Boston University, had a theater institute that I went to in high school. And I actually took a script analysis class and became obsessed with that side of it. And then um, through that sort of, I, I always loved movies. I mean, movies were so magical and the experience of sitting in a theater and watching a movie was, was really fantastic. So my parents, I think also were I think they tried actively to deter me from television. We had like a very <laughs> tiny, we didn't have cable. I, I grew up in the MTV generation that didn't watch. I don't, I've never seen so many classic mm -hmm. music videos. Um, <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, Seattle. Okay. I mean, they're from Connecticut, so it's, they're very waspy, but, um, <laughs> but I, I just didn't, I didn't watch television. And they had a tiny like black and white TV that was sort of in the corner of their bedroom. Like that was the, um, that was my experience with it for a very long time. And then, um, in high school, I just wasn't as interested in that as I was in, in film. Um, and then I, I sort of, I started working um, at CIA as an assistant. I'd, I'd done a ton of internships in features um, in high school and college because I knew that that's where I was headed. Hmm. Um, or at and least I believe that was where I was headed. Yeah, at that point, like, what, what, what did you think your role in I wanted to be a feature big? producer. That was my, I read a lot of the, I think my first, the first book I read that got, that sort of whet my appetite for it was, uh, Julia Phillips' book, um, mm -hmm. You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. And then I was like, there are more of these books, um, <laughs> all that are juicy Hollywood tell-all stories. So I um, I was just really excited about storytelling. Um, and, and and again, I, I continued to love theater throughout, but mm -hmm. but I was I thought, you know, oof, being a feature film producer was a really great position to be in, and films could really change people's perceptions of things. And, um, and so I ended up at um, CAA in the Motion Picture Talent Department as an assistant, and I worked for an agent who was a new agent, so he was in the sort of bastard stepchild TV talent crossover group that nobody really took seriously. And um, I ended up reading a lot of his... I, I read everything he was working on, but um, he covered ABC at the time. Um, 
and that was during the period that they did Lost and Grey's Anatomy. They had this huge renaissance. Hmm. Um, and I, meanwhile, was I started watching uh, television shows on DVD because I had no money. I'd moved here and was completely broke. Um, and I lived in a really horrible apartment in Venice um, Beach. And I rented... Um, I remember renting 24 on DVD <laughs> because it seemed like a really good way to pass the time at night because I had no money to go out and drink. So I, that became my dessert. I would, I would work really, really hard all day, long hours, and then I started watching 24 a night. And that completely changed my perception of what television could be. Um, and I started, and, and my boss at the time was covering Paramount, and it was during um, Sherry Lansing's final years there. So there were a lot of projects in development hell, and not much was, ex- not many exciting things were happening in features. So um, I was reading all of the TV scripts that he didn't really feel like reading, and getting really, really excited about the pace of television. And the TV department at CAA, especially at the time, which was in 2003, was having so much fun. I mean, they actually had a different energy over there. Um, and the feature department was so... They took themselves so seriously. <laughs> and I I just started watching a lot of television and consuming it. And I back then, I went to the Museum of um, mm-hmm. Radio and Television to watch pilots because not everything was available on DVD at the time. Mm-hmm. But the way that I used to consume movies on DVD, I started consuming television on DVD. So it was the perfect... It was that perfect... Um, crux for me of things coming out on DVD and mm-hmm. being available to me to catch up on all of the television that I never watched <laughs> as a child and seeing what was possible on TV. And then it was this unbelievable time in basic cable with The Shield and premium cable with um, The Sopranos. I mean, it just, everything was exploding in television. And then Lost was coming out and everything. So I, I went to, I was, at that moment, I was interviewing to find my next gig and leaving the agencies. And I happened to interview with David Madden, who was the head of the movies and miniseries department at Fox TV Studios. They were just getting into TV, they had mm-hmm. into series. They mm-hmm. had The Shield on FX. And right when I started working as, a, as his assistant, I remember him getting a call from, I can't remember if it was Peter Ligori or John Langraff at the time, saying, we want to allocate all of our money towards series. We're sort of done with movies and miniseries. And David had to very quickly make the switch to remain viable and, and necessary as that studio that would feed FX to series full-time. They were probably doing 20% series and 80% mm-hmm. movies and miniseries. And they had to make a really quick shift. And I was there right at that moment. So I got to learn television as David Madden learned it, sure. which was unbelievable. That's so that's that's how I got into it. This yeah. long. And then, then you're kind of off and running. And um, then I was, uh, yeah. And then I was there for, they also had no money. They weren't, they, they weren't part, unlike Fox 21, they weren't part of 20th in terms of in getting all of their overall deals. Mm-hmm. So they had, Relationships only with movie and miniseries writers. They didn't even have series right. writer relationships. So they were trying to figure out what they were doing and were they trying to compete with 20th and with all the big broadcast studios or were they going to, going to continue to try to feed FX and, and mm-hmm. some of the cable places. So they, did, they very quickly did Burn Notice and Saving Grace for TNT and The Riches for FX and... They were really quickly off and running, and I think David's taste um, is hmm. primarily, and the way that yeah. he 
his relationships with writers and the way that he treats writers, I think, is, is a testament to how successful they were so quickly. That's interesting. That's yeah. really cool. Um, Chris, let's go over to you and uh, tell us just about you know your entree into the industry and what kind of a TV nerd you were growing up. I grew up watching a lot of television. I mean, a lot of genre programming, classic Trek, <laughs> Twilight Zone, which is... Which is, and it's still my favorite show ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think the first time I really realized there were people writing television, I think was watching Moonlighting with my parents, which was so brilliant and mm-hmm. so witty and so pithy that um, I think that's always stuck in the back of my mind as a show that I hold a lot of other shows up to. How good it was. Um, you know, in high school and college, Star Trek and more Star Trek and even more Star Trek. I used to go to conventions and uh, just geek oh out as 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 just as bad as you could be a, a Trekkie. I think I probably am. Um, uh, but I did the acting thing as well. I got uh, my undergraduate degree in acting. I got my master's degree in acting. I studied um, uh, in London with... Um, my graduate program, which was fantastic, this conservatory out of Florida State called the Oslo Conservatory, and then moved out to L.A. and did the acting thing a little bit, but I think what I loved the most about it was the script analysis. And I just got really lucky and um, got a job Mm. picking up the phone for some television executives, Sarah Timberman and some other ones, and I picked up phones for five years. I also worked at CAA for two years, uh, picking up phones for Adam Berkowitz at the time. And, um, and it's then, interesting. And then got my job. Let me just, inter- just interrupt for a sec. It's interesting that like, and we hear it a lot among writers and produ- writer producers that the ones who spent time at an agency, it feels like this amazing crash course mm. for just how the various different pieces of the industry work. Well, was that the case? Right. Was that it's the, the case business for you? part of show business? Yeah, which, and it's you don't it's, see from the outside. Which you don't see from the outside, and I think there's. And I speak to so many people. I'm sure you guys do. That 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 the agent is, um, you know, I, I, so many disparaging things to say about an agent, and it's not a creative position. But it, I think sitting there for two years, it is such a creative position. You, you they have to, they work uh, um, to generate uh, so much from the writer and onward that it is. Um, it is. I mean, it was so amazing to see it from, um, you know, from that side, and yeah. how if they're a good agent and have a good relationship with their writer, mm-hmm. they're the first one. They're the first ear that for for that writer every development season who is hearing that writer's one idea or twenty yeah. ideas, mm-hmm. and that is, when you're hearing your client's twenty ideas is very it's quite you have to navigate those waters as to how you're gonna either you know really love maybe you really love one of the ideas or how do you tell them i don't think that one is quite right and not have them fire you as their agent or not, you know i mean and, and really to pick out the 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 one that can be turned into something great yeah it, i totally agree it can be really creative they have to know the marketplace, you know, in a way that we we all do too, um, mm-hmm. and anticipate everything. And they also have to have the imagination and understanding of their writer's potential to see sort of to be able to both bring them an idea and to be able to steer them away from yeah. something that they're not capable of executing. And convince <laughs> us to pay for it too. <laughs> and convince us to pay for <laughs> it. Well, there is some of that. There right? is. It's, there it's, is. There's a lot of that. <laughs> what What do those calls sound like? Mm-hmm. 
pitch calls. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that a, the mark of a really good agent is knowing their audience, and I think it's. I would like to think that it's a mark of a good studio executive to know our audience. Mm-hmm. An agent has to upsell to us and know who they're pitching to. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty straightforward. If it's got a spaceship in it, I know that they're going to give me a call. <laughs> um, but, but, but it's also I joke about it. But it's also knowing my taste and 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 the things that I'm mm-hmm. going to respond to in a script and a writer. Um, and so agents are able to bend my ear and and know that. And it's the same. Uh, thing that I, you know, hope that I try to bring to my job, which is knowing what these guys think, and when I'm out to pitch, um, know, you know, uh, uh, understand what makes a good pitch, understand how we're going to be able to sell it in the marketplace, know where to pitch it to, um, and and try and you know uh, try and get the thing sold. I also love when agents lead with their taste. Those are the agents that I just love, mm-hmm. absolutely. When they are excited, I mean, I get sure. really excited about TV and I get really excited about great writing. And when they call me and it's not pitch season, it's not even staffing season, I don't know, we're in some just no man's land and they're like, I just signed this guy. Or, or, or <laughs> right. a lot of times it's like, I just found this guy. The, the feature side just had me read this feature. Like, mm-hmm. I have to send this to you right now. I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy. And I mean, I know they're working me, but the ones who I have had a relationship sure. with now for 12 years or something, I know when they are being when they are genuinely happy that script goes to the top of my stack and I can't wait to find that new voice and they're leading with taste as opposed to oh I know you're at CBS and I know what you're looking for and I think this writer can write what you're looking for I mean this is just much more kind of in the gut than that mm-hmm. like here's a great writer we'll figure out something to do right. with him or her later well it's, yeah. it's the same with writers by the way yeah. I mean I think that's it's it's that's just a blanket statement I mean I I get the most excited about a writer who has an idea that they cannot contain themselves you know that they this is something they were either born to write or have to write or aren't even asking permission to write they're going to write it regardless but you know they'd of course love to get paid for it um but they just they're they're like bursting and they cannot you know they're picking up the phone to call anyone who will listen Mm -hmm. to tell them that idea i think we all got into this because we love this business and we love television and we love what's possible so i don't know that any one of us responds to assignments, you know, when, when writers, it's like, oh, everyone's looking for a medical show this year. And so everyone comes in with that assignment and they're like, I've done my homework and here are the characters. And as opposed to, I just happen to have a medical show that I cannot, you know, this is the year, thank God, you know, CBS is looking for medical shows this year. And it happens that way. I think, you know, timing is everything, but you can't, if it feels like an assignment, we all smell it, and agents, I think, have a hard time pitching it too. Definitely, sure. Uh, let's just uh, wrap up the biography section. Oh, the biography Brian. section. Uh, let's see. Um, I was also, uh, yeah, obsessed with television from early on. What were your shows? Sesame Street. Yeah. Sure. Mr. Rogers. I'm talking early on. <laughs> By the way, I did watch that. <laughs> there you go. I thought about that. I did. Oh, my black and white television. You can't do that on television. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there were a lot of comedy. I, I remember. Uh, I remember a lot of Three's Company being on. I, I don't know. Was I watching it? I think I was watching it every night. So I, it, was, it was. I was watching syndicated mm-hmm. Three's Company. Uh, oh my gosh! I was watching. Um, I also watched Moonlighting. That was that was that was big. Golden Girls. I remember that was like a that was a huge thing when it happened. Um, I remember in '94. I remember being a freshman in college. And I remember ER and Friends. I don't mm-hmm. know why they were already 
I don't know why I was already predisposed to sitting down and watching those hmm. two pilots. I know I didn't know the word pilot. Right. Um, but I, I remember sitting down to watch those 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 two shows. Um, so you didn't have the experience like as Caitlin did where like you were reading the book and saying, I want to be a part of that. I had the ex- You were still just a consumer. I didn't know I was just a consumer, um, and it was in college and I'm in I'm at Vanderbilt in mm-hmm. Nashville. Um, where I, I try to take any kind of, you know, I was an English major, and we didn't really have many, zero TV uh, yeah. classes. And they have a film school now, film TV school now, but not when I was there. Um, so I did read books, but they were they would always be focused on TV. I never even considered film. I just loved TV. Hmm. Um, and then as I was reading some of the books, then I understood... Well, television is more of a you know we've all heard this, but television is more of a writer's medium, features more of a director's medium, and then I thought, well, maybe that's why. I mean, now I know for sure that that's what I want to go into because I was kind of a, a nerdy reader growing sure. up. So if I was if you're a lit TV, guy, yeah, if I wasn't in front of the TV, I was in front of a book, and yeah. then yeah, I'm an English major, so that certainly sealed it if there was ever a doubt. And then I came out here right after college and got a job as a PA at the WB and knew that I wanted I needed to become a development exec I mean I'm sorry I needed to become a development assistant mm-hmm. and uh, the every time an assistant gig opened it of course went to somebody who had had a year's worth of agency experience mm-hmm. <laughs> and after nine years of, I mean after nine months of being a PA I couldn't I couldn't then jump over to an agency and so um, right. I I had become friendly with the with the assistants at in in programming in development and current uh, who are all executives now uh, hmm. Mike Azlina Beth Meares um, Mike Marks Jay Potashnik and uh, and I became friends with them and I said every any day you're sick any time you are going on vacation any time you need to go to the dentist you call my boss the head yeah. of the PAs and ask for me to sit on your desk and let me start to get the the year of your executives and then uh, luckily then I became an assistant uh, That's cool. the next time an opening happened I, I ended up getting that gig who was your first assistant yeah. uh, I was an assistant <laughs> to two executives one was the head of uh, scheduling Rusty Mintz and he was also in current and then I believe I was Nicole Norwood's first ever assistant because she had just been promoted maybe a year prior I was with them for like four months, and Mike Azzolino left to go to CBS Studios for his first junior executive job. He was Kate Jurgens' assistant. Mm-hmm. I became Kate's assistant. And shortly after that, I think we we were together for six, seven, eight months. Suzanne Daniels decided to step down as president of the network and start her own production company. Mm-hmm. And so Beth Miara's, Kate Jurgens, and I went with Suzanne, and now we were in on the ground floor of, of a production company and it, it was awesome that was that was my college I mean and I was kind of like Suzanne had been to the pinnacle of you know she'd been the president of the network but she had never sold before right. yeah, and obviously she's married to an incredible showrunner um, and her brothers are incredible writers and they were pretty, I think Paul was a co-EP on Bernie Mac at the time, and mm-hmm. Warren was work. I mean, these are interesting. She was, so, she knew everything about TV, but uh, she had not sold before. So the four of us really kind of buckled down and and mm-hmm. learned. And I think Beth and I, as the young young youngins, decided, well, we're going to read everything that is ever submitted here, 
and we would put together a report every three days of wow. like you know like coverage on like fifty scripts. I mean, we yeah. and we would just have it on their desks, and we just kind of turned ourselves into development executives. Isn't it crazy? Just, I was just say <laughs> I remember how hard I worked back then. I, mean, I was so hungry. <laughs> I read so many scripts. And I don't want to say that I don't work hard now because I do. It's a totally different kind of work. Yeah, you have people. But um, <laughs> well, I it's do. Not the, well, it's not the grueling it's, like, but you, eyes but on the page more that it like was. Entrepreneurial. I mean, I remember yeah. being that way yeah. where I was like, I'm going to. At the time I was at FTBS, no one had ever been promoted as an assistant. Yeah. And I just, I didn't think twice about that. I was like, okay, that's fine. I have David Madden's assistance in his, you know, in his lifetime or his, mm-hmm. his, exe- you know, his time as a producer and an executive, I've been promoted. Yes. Well, then that's all I need to know. And I just, and I just made myself invaluable. And I don't know if that's, I don't know. It's just crazy. I, I just think of how I feel like I worked harder as a coordinator or harder to become a coordinator and then be a coordinator hmm. than I do now in, yeah. in, in many ways in terms of the grunt work, in yeah. terms of yeah. that busy work that that really kills you and generating grids and all of that yeah. stuff. I mean, as part of it. I mean, maybe FT, FTVS was sort of new. I mean, you were on something new. Oh, I was creating I was at a systems, production yeah. company, which, I mean, now I think if I have 50 scripts in develop or if I have... 50 scripts in development, I think 48 of them have a production company attached. Right. Like, I don't think there were, there were not as many yeah, pods that so. this is, you know, this is, this is what, 2000, this is, years ago? this is 2001. Yeah. I mean, there were not this many pods. There, we, we, they were around for sure, but I don't think that those jobs were, were totally as established, the kind of junior executive, they weren't established, so I felt like I was kind of feeling my way through it, and yeah, it just became, how can I take work off Suzanne and Kate's desk, how can I be added value? Yep. And that became, wow, there are a lot of scripts here that need to be read. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of writers that need to be identified, both. And then we got a show on the air. We got Hidden Hills on the air after Frasier on Tuesday night. I mean, it was crazy. And and so now we got to do staffing. So, like, oh, I had done so much reading on the development front. Now I got to do a whole kind of different oh, level of reading. Certainly agents now see... Beth and I is kind of the entree into how to, you know, as to somebody who they can, you know, definitely get on the phone and have a conversation with, no matter how young their clients. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was several years of a lot of reading. It was great. Did you do? Did you have experience in current? And Chris, did you have any current experience? No. Um, I mean, now with so many direct-to-series shows, yeah. Um, you know, we find ourselves doing. Um, you know the development of whole seasons at the, instead of just the development of a pilot. Do you um, do it with the current executives? With our current executives, but you know, where we work, mm-hmm. it is there's such a great um, there's such a great back and forth between the development department and the current department that Kim Rosenfeld runs at Sony. That there is a lot. There's just there's just a fluidity between development and current that we um, you know we're all in each other's business. So if it's a straight to series order, you have a current executive assigned from the beginning, and we all as work well on it together as development. Executive. We should yeah. Let's let's uh, get we'll, to basics we'll get for to a that, second yes. here. Um, first of all, let's talk about these different kinds of executives that a writer might uh, encounter coming to a studio or network. You want to do the studio and network thing first. Oh yeah, I guess we I guess should. We probably should right? <laughs> yeah, all right. Let's let's talk about that. <laughs> um, well, just the just the uh, 
I'll, I'll start it off and you guys jump in. But the studio basically owns and produces the show. The network um, leases, it. leases it, I suppose, is the best way to say it. So, the, you know, if, if a certain television show costs $4 million, the studio is basically bearing the, the, the majority of the brunt of that costs. And the network is paying a license fee or a rental fee, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose you could call it that to to show the show, um, but the network, you know, the big secret is the network doesn't own the show. Uh, the studios actually own the shows, um, and so networks get their money from advertising. Obviously, uh, studios get their money from um, syndication, but a lot of things. But basically, owning a show and being able to sell it over and over again, internationally, domestically, if you can amass the magic number of episodes, selling it over and over into syndication, those are the ways that a studio is going to end up making their money. That's the big. You know, secret between what a studio and a network is, mm-hmm. the basic flow of development is, you know, from um, a writer and an agent up the chain to a production company, pitching it up to studios. We will pitch it to networks and sell the show up the chain that way. What did I miss? Um, the only thing I would add to that is having jumped from a, um, a studio to a network and back to the studio very deliberately for this reason. To me, I think. Um, with all of the panic about uh, the broadcast business, given how many different ways there are to view television these days. Um, to me, the smarter business is owning and controlling your content. I mean, I remember when I was at FTVS, and this was way before Netflix was even doing original programming. They were just streaming programming. And I remember thinking, why is everyone panicked? We get to decide if we want them to have our shows or not. Like we actually have, we control them, we own them. So they don't just they don't just stream our shows by you know without our consent, which is a really important position to be in. Who, whoever owns the content, whoever owns the content controls it. And I think what a lot of people also don't realize is. Um, if you can't sell your shows internationally, that's a very big problem. I mean, I think it, it completely affects your business. So one of the most, you know, one of the biggest things that we export in this country is television um, and entertainment and, and movies. So um, if your license fee, um, your licensing fee from the network, from the um, uh, domestic uh, network, so mm-hmm. ABC, NBC, CBS, um, ABC only gets you so far. Um, if you can't sell to some of the key markets, international markets, um, you don't really have a show. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a, a really important part of the studio business. Um, and then, of course, yeah, you make some extra great bonus money in syndication if you get that far. But um, but it, just in terms of getting your first few seasons on the air, you really need as many buyers as possible. Mm-hmm. And the um, American buyer is just the first. <laughs> are, are you looking... I mean, it's a lot of masters to serve before you even find a network. So you're sitting here trying to develop your show, and you're literally saying, can I sell this internationally? No, I actually just... It's funny that we're talking about this. <laughs> I, we just sat down with our... Um, with our international distribution department, and it was we had a really interesting conversation because the marketplace is it, it changes. The, the most critical thing that I learned was that a big hit here is going to be a big hit internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, they're you know they're going to be chasing the same thing that we are in terms of um, if it's something that we are this country is really excited about and is watching in mass. They're excited too, but but it, it you know the procedurals and crime, specifically crime shows do very very well internationally, and CIS is both. Um, it, it's the biggest show in the world, um, but it is also the biggest show internationally, um, as well as in this country. Oh, yeah. Serialized shows um, do tend to um, not fare as well internationally 
at, at least that's what the common right. conception has always been. There are plenty of shows which have broken that. Right. Breaking Bad, uh, you know, a, a number of other shows. And I think now that especially your the audience is more used to binging, mm-hmm. um, I think that serialized shows are playing quite well internationally. But, you know, it's interesting... As you mentioned, the question is, do you have to think about that when you're when you're taking the original pitch? Well, it's that thing that we were talking about before, which is if you develop with an agenda, nothing will work. Mm-hmm. Right. If it's not oh. coming from a, a place of passion, if it's not coming from a great idea, if you don't just love it right off the bat, then it'll always feel like you're trying sure. to develop inside of a box or you're trying to you're trying too hard to make a television show, and that never drives. I will never be able to sell it to you. You will never be sell it up, and it'll definitely not sell internationally. If we love it, if there's a passion behind it, if there's something, a great kernel of an idea there, people will like it. Like you said, a great show is a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, you have to, I think, think big uh, internationally, but boy, if it's just not a great idea right off the bat. <laughs> well, I think to sort of get back to Brian's question, which I think is a good one, um, and, and kind of play devil's advocate on it. Um, you know, if someone's coming from a cynical place and creating a show or right. pitching a show, I think, yes, obviously we can tell and nobody's going to want that. But you can still come from that earnest, passionate place, but that question does need to be answered, right? Of, okay, people are interested in this show that I'm selling, but now we have to say, is it? feasible. Will an international market want it? And then start to make those pieces fit. No? I think before we even get there, it's, will I be able to sell it to a network? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. um, the, I mean, that's the, the first big hurdle of, of, of getting, you know, getting a show made and getting it to series is, is selling it, uh, selling it to a studio, having us decide that it's something that we want to back and try and take it to a network and then selling it to a network. And it's, I know it seems magical, (laughs) um, how a show ever gets sold and how a show ever gets made. Um, but it, but in, in, in truth, it happens all of the time. Um, it's just, well, I don't know. Yeah. Jump in. This I, I was going to say. Let's uh, let's talk to you guys about this because you've been on the buying side of it. Um, I told you I was going to say what I believe the listeners are thinking is what's the magic words that I get to go to CBS and say right. I have this show. Yeah, yeah. Here, the, abracadabra. How, how you sell it. Here I mean, it as is. Somebody who started as a seller and is now a buyer. I I truly. Have I still have an out of body experience when I'm hearing a pitch, if we're passing on it or 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 more if we're buying it, to say, I literally am like, oh, what did they do? What was the magic thing that they put mm-hmm. together to make me love that? I mean, you you really because if you if you spend years and years selling, you don't just go into buying and turn that <laughs> off. I mean, and 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 certainly we end up. You know what we talk about in our jobs as development executives is that we consider ourselves sellers as well. I mean, it's one thing for us sure. to buy our slate, but we are pretty quickly selling it to the you know to the company at large and 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 selling it to you know the CBS audience mm-hmm. come fall. Um, but what is the magic way to sell it? I mean, I don't know. Caitlin, certainly, it's not a. <laughs> it's it's certainly passion. You 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 know when. 
you know, by the time it gets to a network these days, we just talked about a proliferation yeah. of pods. There are an awful lot of co-signers walking in with this project. <laughs> it's been developed the possibly the, three or four times already. The agent, yeah. the, 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 we talked about the agent was the first one to hear it. He or she liked it. Now a, a production company, probably several, ended mm-hmm. up ended up liking it. They aren't they aren't out there sell, trying to take out fifty things. They ended up liking it. Now a studio came that has even more weight because mm-hmm. they had to put some real money behind it. And now they are walking out in the marketplace. And by the way, they're coming to CBS, and we know how many options you have. So they're actually feeling like we could be a good home for this. They don't. I mean, yeah, 20 years ago they would have. They would have had not had. To, if you're going to try to sell your show, there weren't that many places to sell. Now they're saying we think this is a good show for you guys. Not only do we think it, the agent thinks it, the yeah. production company thinks it, the writer thinks that it could be a good home. I mean, we. We are definitely looking for people who think we could be a good home for their show. We want to sell ourselves for why we might be a good home for your show if you don't otherwise think so, um, assuming that we liked it or we like mm-hmm. the, 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 the log line of it. Um, so, I don't know, it's kind of a, it's a complicated answer. Um, well, it, it's that, that thing of being heavily vetted... You yeah. know that that and goes a long way. I think is the is the sure. key element. You're you're really prepared. Hmm. I mean, not only have you pitched to your agent or possibly multiple agents that are on your team, you then have pitched to multiple producers, sure. multiple studios, multiple networks. So yeah. I think you know, and then and the first network you pitch to is always like the <laughs> kind of the dry run anyway. You always yes. sort of start your writer with okay, where do we not want? You know, where do we not either think we can right. sell this mm-hmm. or where do we not care as much? Right. Uh, you know, who do we not care as much about? So. So, um, you know, by the time... Do you see different styles with different studios coming through your door? Um, Like different pitch styles that maybe they mandated with their writer? I mean, when I was at Fox, if this is the question you're asking, when I was at Fox, there were definitely... Every studio had a very different style, for sure. Sure. Um, You could tell all of the different studios apart, I think, pretty, pretty easily in terms of how, just how they presented um, we all bring the, all our good, writers in and, over mm-hmm. and over and over again to work on those pitches. I mean, I think before we walk in the door to see a network, they've been in to see us four times, mm-hmm. five times sometimes. Are you um, changing the idea necessarily, or are you changing the way that they are going to get the idea out to me? Both. I mean, I think, and we'll talk about this, about styles of development mm-hmm. and... Um, I think you, you, you want to. You, you, I mean, obviously, it's it's our jobs are to support, to empower, to um, be the second eyes to a writer. It's why I love my job so much because I love writers and I love the creative process. That initial kernel of an idea that comes in the door that's pitched to us, you want to try and wrap that around with a blanket and, and protect it as best you can. Um, and it is, it's both, yes. You're working on both the thrust of the pitch, mm-hmm. the bones of it, how to make sure that it feels like a series, how it has legs for episodes, how there are, um, you know, there's a great narrative behind it and great characters behind it. But also, part of my job is to teach writers who don't pitch. I mean, I've been in hundreds and hundreds of pitches, and so have you. They haven't been in that many pitches. Probably more, by the way. Probably more <laughs> thousands of pitches. Yeah. Um, gosh, 
thousands of pitches. <laughs> That's um, true. But to teach someone who has only been in a few pitches how to how to get their idea across, mm-hmm. um, someone who usually sits and spends their life in front of a screen, to be able to. <laughs> put on the suit and hat and coat and tie and go out and try to sell their wares, it's a daunting thing. And so um, so part of my job is to try and teach them how to pitch uh, and or help their natural inclination, I think, yeah. uh, to pitch. Because I think everyone has a style on, on to, bring it, you know, to bring it across. That's what you're going to buy. I think the, most pitches are sold. Really, most pitches are sold in the first five or six minutes when someone sits across the table from a network executive and says, I have to tell this story. Mm -hmm. I've got 100 episodes in me. These are the themes I've been dying to tell. This is my mother. This is my sister. This is my life. This is something that makes me terribly angry, and I have to get that across. Or this is something that I adore or I Mm -hmm. love. And it's those themes that start a pitch, um, that everything is then built around that I think that's when I feel that's when they get me to be honest with you yep. and that's when I think that get we you, get you yeah. <laughs> I think that's when we're going to be able to sell it is, and I can see when the lights turn on for a network executive when the lights have turned on mm-hmm. for me in that pitch it's yeah. that initial kernel of an idea mm-hmm. I'd like to it is. it's actually when I just you just hit on this for me it's when someone has something to say yes and I think that in this at this time when there is so much television that is both being made and being watched by people people want to talk about things that are provocative they, you know buzzworthy shows are, are, are the, probably the most meaningful and those shows you know are, are coming from a place where people have something to say. Mm-hmm. So I think that's I th- why we all respond is when we can tell someone has something to say whether it's their story or it's just it's, they it's it's a story they have to tell for some reason. It's because there's something behind it. Yeah, the reason for being for your TV show needs to be more than I want to create a TV show. <laughs> right. You know, it, it really there are so many incredible writers out there that you're going to get lost in the your your show isn't going to isn't going to cut it if if it was just kind of like okay I, I thought up a couple of cops in there and their family life and, uh, I mean you got to really have as you say something to to say mm-hmm. that go, by the way I'll extend that to something where I think it's even more difficult that I'll crib from uh, from Drew Goddard, who who said in like written by or something, they were asking him what makes a great speck of an episode, hmm. and he said you have to have something to say. That is even harder to me. He's saying through the oh, prism yeah. of somebody else's show <laughs> in an episode, you have to have something to say. And someone else's voice. Someone else's voice. Someone else's character. Someone else's that voice. Ma- that's what makes him Drew Goddard. I mean, <laughs> if you can get your hands on the stuff that he specced back in the day, I mean, it is, yeah. it is incredible. But that's, I mean, that's an interesting thing. It's sort of a sidebar, but it comes up on this panel a lot of like when you're a staff writer on a show, how do you tell your own story in someone else's voice in someone else's world. I mean, that's, that's I never part of the read job. This, I never read the spec, but um, Dana Tunier, um, mm-hmm. who worked uh, right next door to me in comedy at Fox, would always tell people, I'd always overhear her telling writers, that there was a spec that, all, that, that caught her attention. Um, it was a friend spec called The One Where They All Get AIDS. And I, 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 I don't, I've never read it. I should get my hands on it. But the, even just that title grabs you. Yeah. And I think that there's something that is is loud about that. I mean, I think you know you you want to write a spec that isn't necessarily something that's going to get shot, but it's memorable in some yeah. way. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I want to get specific for a second, if we can, and talk about, you know, as a seller, was there a uh, pitch that you helped hone uh, that worked, where everything clicked? And maybe the idea that came to you wasn't fully formed, but there was something there. And likewise, as a seller or a buyer, you know, the same sort of question. Like, what were the pitches that worked? Uh, as specifically as you can. I think, um, I, I feel like an, a great idea can come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and that most of the time we're sitting in front of writers who will, um, who will pitch us something that, something brilliant and I feel very lucky to work at a place that I work where I get to pitch to both cable and network at the same Mm -hmm. time so um, so there's not a a filter that I'm trying to see a pitch through it feels like they can come in and pitch us something totally clean and and I can get passionate about it Um, but I mean to be specific I think Blacklist was one of those magical pitches that um John Fox, who works at Davis Entertainment, came in and pitched a kernel of that idea. Mm-hmm. He, he called it criminal, and he was he pitched a number of ideas. It was just a general meeting with a um, you know with a with a producer, and he pitched a whole bunch. And when he pitched uh, the bo- bare bones of Blacklist, it was so compelling that mm-hmm. we kind of stopped the meeting and said, "All right, that's really cool." here's a bunch of writers that I have deals with. Do you know any of them? And he just happened to know John Bokenkamp. He called John um, the next day. I remember him calling me back and said, yeah, he's he really likes this uh, criminal idea. He's going to call it the blacklist. I'm like, sure, great. Uh, come in and pitch it. And it was, it was just one of those wonderful um, moments when a great idea and a writer who saw it too and then brought mm-hmm. so much to it. Bokenkamp brought the heart and the soul and the long arcing um, uh, the long arcing uh, 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 drama behind mm-hmm. it and the pitch was so on point and wonderful mm-hmm. and then it you know it was just a great script did uh, you have to NBC. yeah so did you have to translate it uh, for the pitch to various networks or you know he wrote the he wrote the script first right no we went oh, out and okay. pitched it uh we pitched it all over the town uh, i mean we we worked on it i don't know we must have had three or four meetings again mm-hmm. uh to work on the pitch uh, hone it clean it up make sure that it feels like it um you know comes across well and we pitched it all over town nbc bought it and it felt like the right home for it at the time and he just wrote a knockout script that was just one of those mm-hmm. one of those great moments when you know script comes across the desk. I mean, right now is the best time of the year, as far as I'm concerned, because it is. it's, it's all like the shows that we've sold. And anything is possible, <laughs> oh, and man. you're so excited about what these children could all be. Um, but it's you know, but you don't know yet. It's but early December it's, right now. Right now is when we're getting in all of our scripts for yeah. all of the network shows that we've sold this year. It is the best time of the yeah. year. You, I mean, so much of our lives are spent on business affairs and deal making and going out to pitch and all of the crap that we have to do for this magical moment when hmm. sixty pages arrives in your inbox, and it's the realization of the beautiful idea, hmm. and it's so awesome. And and just particularly on that one when that first draft came in, I think we all thought it was going to be really special. Cool. Um, I'm a February cool. guy. You are? I'm yeah. You start guy. rolling them in. You like the casting? I, I like shooting, ten, I like calling ten producers to say we are shooting your pilots. Hmm. The hope and promise it is so awesome. 
is it's hard for forty five scripts to me to be TV shows. It's hard for that to be real. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like I get so excited that I want to watch these shows, and when <laughs> I when we order those eight to ten to pilot, that to me, man, February, March, April, May. Yeah. That's Let's, like, we I should take it. a second and just talk about the schedule for the year uh, and the numbers because I, well, I didn't realize you guys would buy you know up to forty scripts. Yeah, a network would buy forty. Yeah, 40 I mean, I'll speak scripts. to the broadcast network yeah. schedule. Um, which is which we're um, still you know that's still the standard. Look, here's the like, thing: that's sort the, of where we still are. Yeah, maybe networks are buying things at, at different times, but the the truth is, the upfronts still exist, and yes. the the upfronts are where each broadcast network, oh, and cable present their present their um, their fall schedule, and but primarily the the broadcast ones doing it right there in the second week of May, third week mm-hmm. of May. Um, and so, if that's when you're going to present your fall schedule, then our everybody sitting in this room, our entire calendar prior to that, when you're talking about your broadcast stuff, and I only work at CBS, so uh, this is my calendar, mm-hmm. it all backs up to that date. Um, which so working forwards, let's say we we open up for what we'll call pitch season, Fourth uh, of July. And so we will hear pitches July, August, September, October. And, yeah, we buy in, I don't want to get specific, but, you know, in the, in the, in the 40s, in the 50s, yeah. around there. Um, that's how many pitches we buy. Nothing, mm-hmm. Typically nothing is written at that point. We might, there might be a few specs that came across our desk right. during pitch season that maybe get thrown into that mix. Um, Let me just interrupt yeah, for a second. Ahead. Is that number around the same as what you guys were dealing with at Fox? Yes. Okay. Yes. So that seems reasonable. Um, I think other there are other networks that are a little bit, um, they have more volume. But I think oh, wow. Fox, I didn't know you guys were. Um, In the 40s, 50s? Yeah, that's that's that was Fox when I, I was there. That's crazy. Okay. Um, but I think NBC is like in the 70s. I could be wrong. Wow. So know? before those, let's say, round yeah. number 40 mm-hmm. to 50 yeah. scripts you pick up, how many pitches are you hearing? I think <laughs> wow. I I I between July and October. Between July and October. October. It's an excellent question. I would guess that we average um if I'm counting all of July, I would guess we average about 3 a day. I mean, we hear we can hear 5 yeah. or 6 in a day. But averaging in with yeah. when it's slower in, say, July, where you hear one or two, I bet That's not we're, unpleasant. we're at about three. Oh, it's delightful. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, was at Fox, I think we did a count the final year I was there, and I, I want to say it was 300 or 350 pitches. Wow. That feels right. That, that sounds about right. Yeah. I think that's right. 300, 350. That's so 350 crazy. pitches yep. to 40 to 50 scripts. Right. And keep in mind, the 350 pitches have all been vetted. You know, it's like people go, oh, my gosh, right. there were 350 ideas. No, no, no. No, no. Especially, yeah, John Doe off the street isn't walking yeah, right. to you. Yeah. And, yeah. Especially at CBS, I, you know, we end up saying no to hearing a, a, a lot right. of, of pitches because they just on their face are not right for our the, air. CBS um, is a very specific target. Yeah, too. I mean, you know, yeah. we're all constantly looking at you know to right. to, to broaden our, our our brand, but certainly there are uh, there are pitches that you know when when the studio yeah. the agent when they call they know that it's not for us. They're just letting us know that it's going out around town, yeah. but it's about a meth dealer. Right. <laughs> to, to jump in on that too, I mean, when I was at when I was at Fox, um, June was typically where we would start talking about targets for the mm-hmm. upcoming season, 
as a network that is less specific yeah. Yeah. Um, and consistent as CBS. Um, and we would we would look at because they don't have the ten o'clock hour, they're programming less, um, and so they would look okay. at what they were the new shows they were launching, what the schedule looked like in general, what were the holes, what was missing from everybody's slate, and you start figuring out what your targets are. But when we were launching Mob Doctor, for example, that fall, we were not looking for a medical show that year, so we said no to hmm. most of the medical pitches that people wanted to bring in. So we weren't hearing, I would say, three quarters of the medical pitches that particular pitch season. Um, so it is, you know, even, even when you're not at CBS, everyone has their, you know, for example, NBC this past year, they were joking that they were um, calling themselves NBCIA because they they did the count and they have like six <laughs> CIA shows. Yeah. And so they didn't want anything that was even remotely mm-hmm. in that um, yeah. ether. So, there's, so, yeah, there's a kind of culling even to get to those 300 correct, pitches yes. that are coming in. And during in. June, you really, you know, a lot of people, that's sort of the only time you can breathe during the year. Right. But that's usually when you start talking about your targets mm-hmm. um, oh, when, you, when you are more specific. Yeah. So anyway, so, so June. July, August, July. Yeah, here are the the pitches certainly the ones that you bought earlier on they'll start getting the material mm-hmm. into you the material being there's sort of three three phases you start with a with a story area you need to let the everybody know what your pilot story is going to be sometimes it it is in the pitch right you know if you're dealing with a very premise pilot um, it's in the pitch, uh, you know, and right. lost, the plane has to crash. Um, but they probably even still talked about what their pilot story was going to be as far as the other mm-hmm. the, the storylines that were going on after that happens. In the thumbnail behind the yeah. story area document, it's roughly four pages, three to four pages. Yeah. But the, you know, the, the, the rough the thumbnail on that one is don't write anything that you wouldn't, you would be completely heartbroken if the network threw it out. <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 before you write an outline. Your outline is, which Brian's going to talk about next, is you know ten to fifteen pages. But and that will that will already have vetted a story area. So exactly, yeah. And the story area again, depending on the type of show you're talking about, these can be. You know they're they're conveying something very different. If you're just talking about the very beginning of your serialized show. You know that's a that's kind of a different story document in can a way. You, can you give us an example from something you've worked on or something? Yeah, I mean recent? under the you know I mean it's like Chris was saying. Sometimes our our serialized things uh, tend to have been kind of thirteen episode sales as far as um, under the dome and extant, and so we were reading the pilot story in the context of what we already mm-hmm. had been told the first gotcha. 13 were, right? We were incredibly aware of episode 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 when they were getting the pilot story signed off on. Um, we're doing Zoo this coming summer, which is purely serialized. That was not a 13-episode order initially. That was literally just a, a pitch that we bought, and they wrote they mm-hmm. wrote the, the pilot. And so they did clear... You know what is that pilot story um, with us? And you know they had something very clear that needed to happen in episode one of their serialized show. Um, something that maybe is a little bit more procedural if you're talking about, but of course conveying character. You know the the, the kings on the Good Wife, they aren't just going to say. 
All right, well, we'll just do some legal case. Uh, but the point is what we want to say about the character. No, they are choosing a specific legal right. case for everything that it dredges up for Alicia, which is exactly how they chose their, their pilot story. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't get into what their right. pilot story was, but it was chosen yeah. for a very specific reason. And it's um, a represent- it also works as a representative. And it works as a representative, absolutely. That, yeah, that, cool. that story, that case, if you will, yeah. could take place anywhere in the series. Um, after that... Uh, then you, once you've signed off on that, then outlines. Uh, outline is the next step. The that outline. The outline will have act breaks in it. The story breaks. area document usually doesn't. It just has A, B, and C stories. But the outline is is truly going to be your ten to twelve page yeah. breakdown of what the script is going to look You're like. You're describing in prose, not dialogue, typically in prose what is going to happen in every scene. Mm-hmm. And most of them will slug, I mean, you can slug in, you know, now we're in the barn and now we're outside in the car, but what is going to happen? What is my intention of writing um, once I get off to script? And then after the outline, uh, now it's time for scripts. And uh, The fun part. The fun part. <laughs> the writer, the, the characters actually get to get up walking and talking. Um, and that, and that, as you guys were saying now, in January, we will now have however right. many scripts we bought. We'll call it, you know, forty-five, and and we will have those forty-five, and we will choose which ones we are going to shoot as as pilots, you know, and which ones we're going to order to, yeah. to pilot. So uh, so three hundred, yeah, I want to pause there. pitches, <laughs> three hundred pitches, forty scripts. How many pilots? You know, but for CB, I can only speak for CBS. Right. But uh, if see, this, by the way, this Which CBS is not dra- atypical. This right? is C- it's not atypical, uh, and this is CBS drama. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we tend to shoot eight to ten uh, drama pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, keep in mind. Yeah, as I'm saying all these numbers, as Chris is saying them, this is all just for drama. I think. Yes, yes. Can, I don't. I, yeah, I would say the average was probably five or six. Depending on the season and what the needs are, yeah. that's that's right. And I think comedy has uh, the past few years been a little higher. A little higher, but, okay. Well, with comedy, about it's so tricky because it's all about casting and execution. Yeah, it's about execution. So, I mean, those are so much harder. Those are much more lightning in a bottle, yeah. in my opinion, um, in terms of how it's going to actually come together. But so, as far I think as the rough, the rough numbers, yeah. and certainly the yeah. schedule and and how yes. it goes. And, and I wanted to just yeah. pick up that schedule. So, while this is going on, Chris. Uh, what are you? What's your development look like? Like, what are you getting prepared to bring to network? Uh, and and you can speak to this too, Caitlin, having just gone through it for this first time at ABC. Uh, yes, Caitlin and I are both at studios now. Yeah. So I mean, take everything that Brian just said and back it up a few months. <laughs> yeah. we're hearing yeah. we're hearing pitches uh, much sooner. Uh, How right, many are right you after guys up front. This, I think about the same amount. Really? I'm sure we hear three. I'm gosh, we hear you know 200 pitches or whatever. Um, we're taking out less, um, but um, you know, but we're selling. You know, we're you know we're selling them roughly in the drama side. Mm-hmm. I don't know, 25 to 30 pitches to, to 30 scripts to broadcast networks. Sometimes you're selling you know a dozen or so, or maybe more to cable at the same time. Um, but yeah, it's it's basically the same schedule: mm-hmm. go out, pitch, sell scripts from July to October, write them all. Um, you know, get through the story process, get off to script as quick as you can, see if we can deal with business affairs. Deal with business affairs. <laughs> um, you know, get get these scripts in and 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 see if we can um, get some pilots picked up in mm-hmm. in January. And when you guys are, let me, excuse me, one sec. When you guys are working with a writer who has sold a script to a network, um, are you 
going through the phases with him or her. You're Absolutely. giving notes on that outline, yeah, we, that, we et We basically do a round um, yeah. uh, before we give it to the network. Yeah. Um, we do at least one round um, on, at every step. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of the first line of defense, mm-hmm. the first set of editors, because I think yeah. executives are very much like editors. I, I, you know, I think that we we all want it to be good, and no one... I think there's a... There's a Misperception um, on the part of writers, and I and I, and I understand. We're going to talk why. about notes now. Um, Let's talk about notes. a little bit. <laughs> I'm sure. I, I, I think we should. I'm I think sure there's a sense yeah. that you know that executives are blocking the creative process, the and they are like teachers with red pens that kind of want to tear it down. And you know, and I don't know. I feel terrible that certain certain writers feel this way. They obviously feel this way for a reason. I don't think people just drum themselves up unnecessarily. I think they they clearly had a bad experience or two or three with an executive, and I and I feel terrible about that. Um, but for me, I and part of this I think is because I'm married to a writer. I, I have a very different approach, and and I think and 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 most of the executives, certainly the two of you sitting here, I, I'm sure feel the same way. I. I just want it to be good. I'm, and the same thing when I was uh, when I would hear pitches. I, I I don't want to waste my time. No one wants to waste their time, and no one wants to. Um, you, you, like even when I would hear pitches, I would want them to. I would be an, an active audience. I would I would be mm-hmm. an active listener, and I wanted to be entertained. I wanted to enjoy that hour with that writer, and I wanted to sort of hold up my end of the bargain of, of being a good listener. And if it wasn't the right home, I wanted them to at least, I wanted to at least enjoy it and feel like, you know, as the studio side of me, feel like I could, you know, in my head, I would be thinking of, oh, this would be great for AMC or this would be great for cable or, or, oh, ABC would love this. It's not right for Fox this year. But to me, that's the best, that's the best way to be. Um, and I'm the same way with notes. You you want to, you want to build the writer up and you want to, you want it to be as presentable um, as possible to the network. And you have a, you have a key advantage as an, as a studio executive, at least in that you understand the marketplace and you understand Mm -hmm. you've worked with the network that you're dealing with probably more than that writer has. And so you understand um, that process and how to help them navigate that process. But you're their partners. It's a partnership. You're not an authoritarian. You're not trying to, you know, everyone wants it to be good. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone just has a different idea of how to get that done. And I think that's where the, that's where the um, confusion comes in. (laughs) (laughs) Would you guys like to, I think that was very well put. Would you guys like to add to that? What has been your experience giving or, or receiving notes? I mean, look again on the uh, on the development front when we're working on that many scripts. I truly feel like you know, and it's just three of us in drama development. I feel like we are just trying to help the writer achieve the best version, or help help the writer achieve their vision. And it does need to fit on CBS. That is where they sold it. Um, but that isn't to say that that your notes are to go to fit the show into a box. I mean, that that's when you don't end up with a great show, you know, and you shave off the rough edges. And you, I mean, you, you really want to hopefully create an environment where they feel like they're out writing the show that they want to write, um, knowing the home that they are that they the, the, that they sold it to. Um, I, you know, I think sometimes I feel like there's like institutional notes, like the the, the notes mm-hmm. that I never gave 
but that we're somehow either the writer intuited that that will be a note, the maybe the studio, the producers <laughs> gave it, and all of a sudden I, I, I get this where if they had sold it maybe elsewhere the script would have come in com- uh, differently yeah. and maybe I would have even liked it more and it's like the <laughs> like the notes of Christmas past that I had nothing to do with and so like I really sure. want to create an environment where it can become the 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 best that 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 that, that writer can 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 do for that idea um, again we don't have to be overly 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 precious about the notes we don't mm-hmm. give edicts you don't have to do it because I am developing 50 things so if i can make those 50 hopefully be kind of the best that they can be hopefully i'm going to end up with those eight to ten mm-hmm. so it's not like you go through with an iron fist and turn all of them into 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 the same thing sure, so of course that, that's one of the benefits i think of developing a lot of, of stuff yeah one of the things i think is missing um and this it's just it's it's really just a um it's an issue of time and during pitch season, it's just so frantic, and no one has time to do any kind of postmortem. But when a network buys a show, this is something I tried to do at Fox, and we, we did it for a little while, at least. You try to get on the phone with the writers and the producers right away to say exactly, in the studio, of course, to say exactly why you bought the show. Hmm. And to have that conversation about what it is you bought and what it is you're excited about, specifically for that network and that home. Because yeah. you do, when you're at the studio, you take out a pitch... And you t- and you might you might tweak the pitch slightly for different buyers, but you're essentially taking out the same pitch to the different buyers that you're that you're pitch to, pitching to. And the writer has a very specific idea in their head of what they think they sold to the mm-hmm. network, and the network heard something specific that they responded to. And I think there's a whole thing when you when you're going through the business affairs process of actually getting the deal done and everything, and then suddenly you're rushing into the story document phase where you don't have that conversation about what specifically does Fox love about this idea for Fox and what do you want to lean into when you even start with the story document. And to me, I think if there was more time for those conversations, I think a lot of confusion in yeah. all of the subsequent steps could be avoided. Yeah, you give ways. yourself a real head start then. I yeah, because everyone's, everyone is very clear about what it is they bought and yeah. what it is they want it to be. Yeah, that, what that, they like about That's it. the mark of a good note, I think. Or yeah. the, the mark of a good thought on a script is when you're all seeing the same end goal Mm -hmm. and the executive acts as another set of eyes Mm -hmm. it all has to be trust that's the i think in order to jump into any notes calls or any um where you're talking about the creative process if there's a level of trust between the writer and the executive the writer then the producer about the script about what the ultimate goal is what everyone's going for and as long as everyone's on the same page there I feel like notes any note is valid because it's how mm-hmm. I reacted to your your script it's how I reacted to how you're trying to get your point across and if we both agree on the point right. then we can talk about the note and the note is valid and I think that that's you know it really has to deal with Yes, you know it, it. It it isn't easy getting a note. I get it. Um, it's not easy having someone, you know, in a sitting behind a desk judging your script. It's but as Caitlin, as Brian says, we're on your side. Mm-hmm. We are 
your, you know, we're, we're your, we're your army. We're your, you know, we're the shield that is trying to help you realize your vision as a writer. And yes, there are things that we can lean on our knowledge of doing this for so many years and shooting so many pilots and reading so many scripts that there are things that we can do to help. Um, and I think one of the big things that we can help with a writer is understanding that a pilot is yes Mm -hmm. a wonderful episode of television but it is also a sales tool to try and get more episodes of that show (laughs) and once a writer i believe understands that and is able to put on the business brain at the Mm -hmm. same time as the creative brain don't get me wrong it really is about the creative of the show it really is about a wonderful episode of television however (laughs) it really also is um a sales tool it is it's a sales tool for me to try and upsell it to the network. It's a sales tool for the network to try and upsell it to their bosses and and once it yeah. and advertisers and, and when it gets on the air, it's a sales tool for the first episode of television to convince an audience yeah. to come back next week. Yeah. And if we're all in the if we're all seeing that at the same because it's not a movie, you're not sitting there for two hours and then everybody goes home. Right. You got to come back next week, <laughs> and if you want to come back next week, you got to be compelled to come back. I think those are the notes that we try to give writers. Yeah, I think the which best studio execs, producers are the ones who are giving those notes mm-hmm. to make it the best as they see it, as opposed to always trying to anticipate what you think the network may or yeah. not say. Because the great, the great writers who have maybe taken CBS in slightly different areas that we didn't know either how to go there or or that that we could. You know, Bruno Heller comes in with The Mentalist, and that was kind of putting a character first in a way that we hadn't done. Then the Kings walk in with The Good Wife. That was something that we had never seen. If studios and producers and everybody, you know, were, were trying to anticipate... CBS on that one, then maybe you know they would have said, "Oh well, they've had a lot of shows on that had you know ten moves to their case of the week, so right. your legal case has to have ten moves." Instead, there were great creative executives helping the Kings along, or just allowing the Kings to to create this the show, and and they they had a great environment for the Kings to allow again to allow the Kings to take that show into the natural place where it would go. Um, and that allowed CBS, ultimately, when it goes on our Sunday night schedule, it changed the way we thought about development. So mm-hmm. it wasn't everybody along along the way trying to turn it into something that they perceived CBS puts on their air. It was more like, oh, wow, this could be a great new way of telling a story for sure. CBS. Well, and I don't mean to sound like Pollyanna about this, but I think that there's also, <laughs> yes, there's the looking at CBS's schedule and trying to anticipate, is this a show CBS would program? But there's also getting to know and, you know, not networking, but really understanding who your counterparts are at the networks and at the studios and saying, I know Brian's taste. I know that this is something that would, he would, he he would love, you know, this would get him out of bed in the morning. This is the kind of show that would excite Mm -hmm. him, whether it ends up fitting into their schedule or not. I know this is Brian's taste because I've gotten to know Brian as an, you know, as a peer. So I think there's a certain amount of that, that we, uh, you know, those relationships that are important, that the writers don't have Mm -hmm. the same kind of relationships. They have writer relationships were, which are equally important because they have, different, you know, different mini writer's rooms that they're going to yeah. always surround themselves with as they're trying to come up with stuff. 
but these are our kind of writers rooms you know we have all of these executives that we know and we understand you know i know for example the agents that love the good wife and i know mm-hmm. who i you know i know I know people's taste, I think, or I know certain people's taste, Mm -hmm. and I can anticipate, you know, things that they're going to respond to and things that are at least going to excite them. Um, And I think that, so I think there's a little bit of a distinction between understanding the people behind CBS and what they get excited about Mm -hmm. and CBS's schedule and and anticipating, you know, is this a show I think is practical if I'm thinking of, you know, if I'm thinking of the business of CBS. Mm-hmm. Which uh, they all work. I mean, I think what you guys are all kind of getting at is something that comes up on these panels a lot, which is TV is a highly collaborative medium. It is. And, you know, and everyone you're working with on the script, from its initial idea to the first time you talk about it to it getting on the air, is a collaborator who wants to make that show. For the most part, you know, it wants to help you get that vision. On yeah, and it's screen. not to say that there aren't bad notes. Obviously, oh, there are. But it's yeah, Absolutely. as long as we're talking, I mean, there's bad executives, there's bad writers. There's sure. bad, I mean, yeah. of course. Absolutely. But, but yeah, when I think we have everybody who is good at their jobs, hopefully rowing in the right direction, you end up with with hopefully something for sure. Great. Well, it's putting together that safe creative space. Even in the note giving process between an executive and a writer, I think yeah. when a writer is in a writer's room. They have to, or showrunner is in a writer's room. They have to establish a safe, creative space where yeah. they can throw out the total clunker ideas, <laughs> and and maybe there's some kernel of mm-hmm. you never know what someone else is going to pick up. And the best writers that we work with also start have a safe, creative space so that I can blab a little bit and maybe get to a point. And between <laughs> the two of us, we can figure out what is that. What's what's bumping mm-hmm. there that we can find that that note in there? And it's such a wonderful um, gift, I think, for a writer to allow anyone into their creative space to say, what do you think? Um, And yes, in in order to do that, they have to be collaborative. It's television. If you can make it through this development hell, well then... Believe me, when you're when you're running a show, it's much harder. Right. <laughs> the, the the business of show running a show, and if you've got to yeah. do that 24 times in nine months, um, is a hell of a lot harder than yeah, uh, <laughs> than just <laughs> developing right. you know developing one script. Right. So I'm not to say that 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 it's you know that that that's some sort of gatekeeping in order to get there, but. <clears throat> You know, <laughs> when they get there, you know that they can hack it. Yeah, uh, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think the uh, the other thing is that um, Mercy Ross, who was the EVP of Current at Fox for I don't know how many years, some like a, like a dozen years or something, she would say when we would get on, especially really tough calls um, with some of our showrunners, she would always say, "This is a conversation. Like this mm-hmm. is like this is a conversation. It's don't think of it as notes. It's just a conversation." And I think that. If if writers understood that that is genuinely how we're all kind of coming onto a call, yes, time it can usually get really tricky around development season. Again, you you've got an hour, you've got forty five minutes to you got to kind of get your notes out and get them you know give the messages that you want to give. But I think at the studio side in particular, but even on the network side, you are a sounding board and you want to when you're giving notes about clarity and, you know, is this what you're going for in this scene? Because this is what we took away from it. You're a sounding board. You are sort of the mini writer's room for them, responding to them and saying, I don't know if this is what you're going for. I don't know if if this is, you know, the takeaway from this scene, but this is what we took away from it. And the writer can go, oh, that's not at all what I'm going for. Got it. I will, you know. And I think that if 
if the perception can be that we are, it is a conversation. It's not, you know, we are we are just trying to make sure the clarity and the tone and the characters are popping the way it's intended. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think that there's a little bit more peace on those calls <laughs> and in those meetings. Sure. Um, I want to ask you guys about specifically this 2014 uh, season and, and stuff you noticed. And, and uh, it was it was kind of a strange year. It's always a strange year. Um, but let's kind of put a cap on the calendar. So, you decide to shoot eight or ten pilots. Decide to shoot eight or ten pilots. Say, uh, that was two like are mid- clearly great. Two <laughs> are clearly terrible. <laughs> I, you are forgetting what I... It's all hope and promise, man. I love these. I love these eight to ten. It's awesome. Um, and then, yeah, go out higher. This is mid-January. Now you're January, February, beginning of March of your, of your prep, which involves everything. Um, you know, but starting with find your director, find your casting director, start getting your start getting your cast put together, figure out your budget, um, figure out where you're going to shoot the thing, mm-hmm. um, and along with your budget and where you're going to shoot comes with how many days you're going to have to shoot it. Mm-hmm. Um, as my two studio executives nod, <laughs> um, we're at the network. We just say you should shoot it, you should shoot it, <laughs> shoot it as long as it takes. Um, and and then after that, you know. The next kind of round of notes, if you will, do happen in the edit bay um, as mm-hmm. we are looking at the rough cut, We, being every step that Chris already described. Mm-hmm. Um, your producers are right there alongside you, then your studio, and then ultimately the network. Um, but, man, there's a hard, fast date that I have to get 10 beautiful Blu-rays in <laughs> to the decision makers. Um, and, you know, development at that point, we've kind of, our job is, is done. We, you know, helped, hopefully help the writers come up with, you know, or get a, their, the episode that they wanted to get down on the Blu-ray. We hopefully help yeah. them, help them achieve that. And now we sort of hand those 10 Blu-rays in and uh, we we go to New York in mid-May and we we literally will find out then what our what our schedule looks like. Is there a conversation that happens when you hand in these Blu-rays? Like do you say can you can you say this pilot needs work but the series is amazing? Like you know that's You mean are there uh, notes once you Well, no, that, you're that, that where you're selling it up. Um, um uh, honestly, I think that the work should speak for itself. I think that the sheer amount that the decision makers have on their plate for mm-hmm. shows that they want to bring back, or, you know, are we going to can't if something's on the bubble? What should the schedule look like? Forget it. There's, n- I'm not trained for that. It's not what I do. Um, I'm literally the guy who works with the writers to help yeah. them tell a story. So to sit there and talk about what time slot, I, no, sure. I, we don't. But we also have people have been doing this for a lot of years and for a lot of years together um so i think everybody has their job i think that this answer might be different depending on what network you're talking to but for me mm-hmm. um i think i say here are you know a drama development says here are our pilots i hope you like them mm-hmm. all right when i was at fox um we would all everyone in the building would watch all of the pilots all together right. Um, and you would have different group conversations, and, and those conversations would get reported up to basically the decision makers. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as far as what I felt I could affect when I was at the network as a buyer, it was really the conversations about what pilots are we going to shoot that I felt like I had the biggest voice 
once something was executed, like Brian said, the work just speaks for itself. Um, and but but I think you know at least at Fox, those departments, marketing, scheduling, current development, all of those all of those departments work actually pretty closely with each other. There are a lot of conversations as pilots are even getting picked up to pilot that they're all that all the different departments are aware of. So mm-hmm. at least at Fox, and when I was there, so this was you know a year ago. Um, there's a, there's a you in development do not have a voice about what you know in terms of what gets mm-hmm. picked up, but the whole building is kind of a flutter with yes. the things that they're <laughs> excited about, and that does I think get translated up to to a, to a certain degree. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, let's talk very briefly. We're coming in on like a two parter here. I apologize. <laughs> let's talk very briefly about. Uh, you know, this won't come out till January, so you can you'll have uh, the selling season behind you. You can speak freely. Um, what were what did you notice this year? What was different? What was unusual about the things being bought, the things that were being brought to you guys as studios, uh, and that the stuff, the things that you were responding to, uh, and then ultimately what was being brought to you uh, at, at the network? I think a trend over the past handful of years has been packaging. I think mm-hmm. um, that there has been a lot of um, it, it. It feels harder to sell across the board. I think maybe networks are buying a little less than they had in years past, or maybe they're buying. You know, there are a handful more production commitments every single year. A production commitment is where um, the network will decide, based on a pitch, to go straight to a pilot. There's a lot of money that goes behind that. Um, So that's a big chunk out of a network's budget right off the bat. And so probably less for just a handful. You know, Mm -hmm. one production commitment would take a number of scripts probably off the table. So because there are maybe less scripts being sold every year, I think that a lot more goes into each pitch, mm-hmm. a lot more goes into each sale. And in order to help swing it in your favor, I think that there have been a you know there has been a big trend over the past handful of years for packaging. And by packaging I mean you know it's based on previous IP, there's a comic book, there's an article, there's a life rights, there's someone walking in the door with you, um, along with, you know, if you can attach a director, if you can attach a showrunner, if the writer is not at the level where they can confidently run a show, um, if you can attach actors, Mm -hmm. you're bringing in more people for every pitch. I can imagine the people that are sitting on Brian's couch and Caitlin's couch every, um, every year, it feels like there are more people coming in every single time. Am I, am I wrong about that? Right. You're right. Those are, now that you mention it, we're giving away a lot more little bottles of water. Yes. (laughs) And so I think that there is a trend to try and, um, to try and swing it in your favor Mm -hmm. due to a perceived, um, you know, less scripts being mm-hmm. bought every year. That's one major trend. Um, any other ones? I think, well, something I've noticed, and I'm curious to see how you guys respond to this theory. I think that what's being pitched now, what comes in during pitch season, is actually a response to what network heads were excited about a year and a half ago. And I'll tell you exactly what I mean by that. Um, if you look at sort of what's on the air now, you look at state of affairs, you look at um, 
a lot of shows that feel a little bit inspired maybe by Homeland. Mm-hmm. Um, even The Blacklist, I would say, sort of, you know, anything that's CIA related, I think, is somewhat inspired by Homeland. Um, what happens is, and I won't name names, but someone very high up that I worked for at Fox saw the first season of Homeland about a season late, like like caught up over the summer <laughs> on the first season, and was like, whoa, whoa, this is amazing, and his or her friends were also talking about it nonstop, and it was it was that, you know, it's sort of, again, what are the shows that get you out of bed? So I think it's, you know, that show for him or her was very exciting at the time, um, and then I think, you know, everyone has the things that they're responding to that they're watching, so even though this year, for example, I think we were all saying it's it's very dark. I mean, you look at your DVR and it's just like it's it's literally and figuratively dark on your DVR right now in terms of what, you know, what what people are watching, what people are programming and watching. So, you know, the mandate for in a lot of ways was how can we brighten it up? How can mm-hmm. we have more fun? And yet, the pitches coming in were still super dark. And I think it's because people are, you know, so so let's say, you know, people here in June or July, um, maybe July, you know, oh, so-and-so, the network, they're looking for Homeland. Well, that writer doesn't have a Homeland to pitch. They've already got their idea that they're really excited about. But they kind of put it in the back of their head, oh, they were looking for Homeland, okay. And as the season progresses, they start coming up with a Homeland-esque idea. Or they themselves are a fan of Homeland and become influenced by it. And it starts kind of rubbing off on them. And they get excited and inspired in some way, shape, or form. And then the next year, or even a year and a half, two years later, they've really come, they've, they've figured out their actual response to that Homeland mandate from a year ago. Um, because again, they weren't ready to pay, they were pitching something else, they were already like, you know, um, committed to another idea at the time. So I think that that happens. So right now, there's a lot of dark stuff either in development or being pitched. And people have said very specifically, like, no more dead kid shows. Like, we have enough dead kid <laughs> shows on every single network. You know, can we can we just have some more fun? And yet, you know, no one has those ideas yet. So I think a year from now, we'll actually start getting those pitches in. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is something that is a reality of the mm-hmm. situation. And, and you're also influenced by what you're watching. And because there are not a lot of shows like Glee or, you know, there's... Orange is the New Black are sort of few and far between of those more dramedy um, types. I think that that's so that's that's something that I've noticed um, in the last year or two that everyone's always kind of behind by about a year and a half yeah, in terms that's of interesting. yeah yeah maybe we uh, maybe CBS isn't subjected to as many of the trends. I think part of it maybe is because I'm. I'm only hearing what I agreed to hear, so mm-hmm. maybe I'm unable to think back to what every what Chris and every and Warner everybody right. was calling me that the they were taking. Yeah, the, 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 right, right, back to the, or the thousand, the thousand. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't totally remember in a way that these guys would or that either the agents would. One thing, I guess, I, I don't know if trend is the right word, but I think now more than ever, and I think this is awesome. Maybe, it, maybe it hurts my own business a little bit but I think it is awesome for my TV viewing is <laughs> when the writer goes into their agent and pitches their idea that the agent 10 years ago would have had to have said listen buddy hmm. that sounds really cool <laughs> there is no home for that there you cannot do you can't do that show that 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 there's no place there's no distributor right now more than ever the agent gets to say 
that's really cool. There might be a home for that. Mm -hmm. And they can take that out into the marketplace and maybe set it up. And maybe that was a CBS show. Maybe it wasn't. But hopefully if it's not, there's still room for that writer to also then to write a second thing. I think people are a lot of people, especially when they sell in cable, are able to take out a second and even third show. So there's more product going out. I think there's great product going out, again, because I think agents are, are, are able to say yes. And then, yeah, I think with the proliferation of cable, it's helping networks stretch as well. And so then we're able to do hopefully different kinds of shows than we would have than, than we would yeah. have in the past. So I don't know if it's a trend, but it, 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 I'll tell you one aspect is that it's everybody isn't everybody being the sellers of the world. Starting with the agents are not all are not always solely focused on funneling their writers into my timetable that I described yeah. earlier in this <laughs> podcast, which of course we would love that if everybody were on our <laughs> calendar. But sometimes they aren't, and sometimes that pitch that makes no sense for CBS at all, um, you know, is, is going to needs to go out right in the time where I wish that writer were pitching, mm-hmm. you know, their idea to me. But I don't know. Ultimately. Um, it's all making for kind of everybody talking about how incredible yeah. the storytelling is on TV. I think it's making CBS's programming better. It's I don't know. I think I think all all ships are rising. I think the I agree. Um, I think the only challenge on the same exact front is that for the first time in the history of television, the um, demand is outpacing the supply in terms of showrunner level mm-hmm. creators, and I think that. Um, and to that exact point, because there are so many different places that are um, that are in the in the original content business, there are a lot sh- there are a lot more shorter orders, mm-hmm. and with shorter orders comes smaller staffs, and with smaller staff comes higher level writers. So you've got a lot of um, producer and hires that are that are impossible to find yeah. anywhere because they're on one staff or another, and they and they kind of have their pick right now. Yeah. So it's. It's a so it's it's a great time in a lot of ways, but I think that our I think everyone who is a showrunner level is exhausted. I think they're just exhausted, and I think the studios are fighting over you know the good ones. It's like we, you've got to have them. You know those the writers are gold right now, which is exactly why I love being in this business. But it's I think that's the challenge right now. That's really cool. Um, I want to ask you guys briefly. Um, Chris, you already told us spaceships are go for you. Um, is there stuff? There's so many other shows, <laughs> right? But if it has a spaceship in it, right? Uh, is there stuff that you guys, um, outside of passion for the project, the want to tell the story, is there specific stuff like that? You know, which again is you know it's, it's sort of glib, but there's truth to it um, that you guys respond to as people who love TV and make TV. I love female relationships. I mm-hmm. think that there are very few. Sh- if you look, think about the posters that advertise the different shows, mm-hmm. where there are multiple women on them, I want to say it's only Orange Is the New Black and Rizzoli and Isles right now sure. that have multiple women. Yeah. Yes, there are a lot of single I female think of one, shows. So you, <laughs> yeah, I think um, 
so to me that is that is the hole that Sex and the City left behind. It's not it's not a show about sex. That's not a show about mm-hmm. relationships between men and women. It's that that show was a love story between those four women mm-hmm. and and their adventures with men. But um, so to me and that, to me that's why Orange is the New Black is so refre- it just feels fresh when you watch it and when you really think about it it's because how many how many television shows pass the Bechdel test? I mean where you have yeah. more than one woman um, in a scene, talking to each other about a man, or in a pilot period, I started to think about that a few years ago, and and I love television, and I love all the shows that I've worked on, and so few of the pilots I've worked on actually have packed, passed the Bechdel test, which is kind of shameful. It's disappointing. So t- yeah. To me, it's you know, to me that's just that's my sweet spot. That's why Desperate Housewives worked. That's why. Um, you know, I, I'm, again, there's not many shows I can even point to, but to yeah. me, that's the hole that I think people could be really filling, um, and and it's all about finding whether it's sisterhood of any kind, mm-hmm. um, real sisterhood, biological or the or the friends that you make along the way, and it doesn't have to be a show only for women. I think it just yeah. needs to be a show with multiple women with very interesting female dynamics. I think that that's that's my sweet spot. That's great. I guess I have no sweet spot. I don't know. I have that entire <laughs> thing you want to answer. I no. I. I don't know. I have a job to do. I want, I want, <laughs> I mean, I go in, the job is to try to find hit dramas for CBS. So mm-hmm. I, I go in to work every day trying to find hit dramas for CBS. <laughs> like, you know, that, and, and that, the ones that have hit, you know, you start looking back and you see Jonah Nolan coming in and kind of, like doing his own little almost like Batman mythology within the framework of a CBS show. I mean, it's like it was awesome. I mean, it's <laughs> awesome. So, but I don't know what I could have said before that that would have led sure. to that's something I wanted. I just sort of knew it. You know, when you hear it, you know, when you read it, you know it. Now, when you just get to sit back as a fan and watch it, and I'm especially proud when it's on CBS where we didn't have a show like that uh, on on the air mm-hmm. and then here he is again with something really to, to to say he talked a lot in the pitch about growing up in England and there being mm-hmm. cameras everywhere um, or anytime he would go to London there are cameras everywhere and he said I I always just as a kid with kind of my comic book brain always kind of said what's going on behind those cameras and then he again developed this kind of a almost comic book mythology yeah. about it and and I don't know yeah that I don't know that gets me excited the, the big secret I think for anyone pitching any of the three of us um, if you're walking in the door to pitch us is we're on your side we're totally on yep. your side we want to be moved we want to love it as much as you do so come in and pitch with abandon come in and pitch with your heart and your soul and if you're trying to, as we've talked about before, if you're trying to hit a mark, it'll feel like it. But come in with big themes, with big ideas, mm-hmm. with something that you love, and don't be afraid to love it hard. Yeah, <laughs> that, no, that's what I have to say, because if you're moved, if we're moved, we're there for you. We want to love it as much as you do, because it makes our job easier, frankly, because <laughs> we found the great pitch. <laughs> Right of that day. Every, everyone says they want character-driven shows, yes. um, and but it, they mean it. I mean, and, and yeah. you can't just you can't just you know kind of make up a character and kind of wing it. I mean, you you really feel it. And it's what's interesting is I, I can't remember who said this, but um, I want to say it was William Goldman, but I could be lying. 
um, said that if you want to be a better writer, um, take a, an acting class mm-hmm. because you understand char- you learn character motivation. And I think the fact that that Chris and I both come from theater, I think I, I suspect so we've worked together that we approach, you know, storytelling, we are always kind of looking at, you know, do these characters feel like they're motivated? Do they feel like they're coming from an interesting place? Is there the sound of nature there? Yeah, and I think, you know, the fact that you took, you know, Brian took... um, was a, you were an yeah, English okay. major, I mean, I think that you know when, when you're reading novels, it, it's the same thing. You know, are these characters jumping off the page? Because if you're going to spend time with these characters on a weekly basis, yes. you know, are they worth spending time with? You know, are they compelling? They don't need to be likable. Right. They need to be compelling and yeah. and characters you want to sit down with, you know, and spend and invest your time with. It's what sets television apart. I mean, exactly. we'll never remember the plot of the. Th- 12th episode, yeah. but you always remember the characters. That's why you come back every week. Okay. I mean, that's why a, you come to television. But a tough note to give, not only a tough note to give, but a tough note to have it to have it then be executed, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about I've got to, I, I need to know more about these characters. I mean, hopefully everybody's creating an environment where the writer can can sit down and say, okay, they're they're looking for even more character out of this, um, but you know, a way easier said than done. So I'll say, yeah, the I'll, <laughs> that's why I'm not a writer and never thought I was. But uh, I think, yeah, identifying maybe where you could dig deeper, and hopefully the writer has that ability, and hopefully. Yeah, we were able to convey it in a way where they understood what we what we meant. Um, hopefully, you end up with a good episode of TV. It needs to be part of the DNA, mm-hmm. I think. You know, otherwise, it's just not. It's gonna, you know, it's an engine someone has has down pat, but they are kind of trying to shoehorn in a, a central character. And again, like you, you like you well said, you feel that. You feel it in the pitch, and then you yeah. feel it when you're reading the script. It's just not working for you somehow, and I don't know how you get that note. I don't think you can. Yeah. If it's if it wasn't baked into the DNA when they when they concocted the idea, it's it's not really going to play. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, we end as we always do uh, by asking you guys, what are you watching on television? What are you enjoying? What are you talking about with your loved ones, your coworkers, your friends? Uh, Chris, what are you watching? Um... A lot of cable, um, uh, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, Game of Thrones. Um, um, I have two kids, so we watch a lot of um, children's programming, but I have to say um, The Legend of Korra, if you haven't seen it, is brilliant brilliant, um, programming. It's uh, the spinoff of... Avatar, The Last Airbender, which was also equally brilliant. Um, so, um, yeah, that's what I'm watching. All right. Um, on top of that, I think Homeland has rebooted itself this season in a way that I did not think was possible. You're the second person to I'm, tell me that this week. I, I, I Don't really, make me go back. I really, <laughs> that's how I felt. I was is, really barely really? hanging it's on last good. season, and this season is just, they've really... They've they've done an exceptional job, nice. um, which I think I I think that's one of the hardest things to do. SVU, by the way, when Warren Light went on to SVU, he rebooted that show so incredibly well. Hmm. But um, The Good Wife is hands down hands down my favorite show on broadcast, easily on on most on pretty much all television, and Transparent I just think is hmm. is unreal. I can't wait to rewatch it um, seventeen times. Um, in addition to the the shows, Chris said. Nice, Brian. Uh, let's see. Anthony Bourdain show on CNN. I do not miss. That is the most unbelievable 
direction, uh, production values, what they are doing, episode to episode, specific to the place where he is. Like, mm-hmm. I, I is like mind mind blowing. I love every second of it. I've watched some of them twice, um, and uh, I watch uh, the Mindy Project. Oh, love. <laughs> I should have I should have said some comedy. I mean, I think what's also amazing is that since we work in TV at at our own, you know, at our own companies, we get to watch the shows that we're working on. Yeah. And, and yeah. I am just, I mean, I hate to be the home, you know, just batting for the home team. But there are a lot of shows that we produce that I'm so, you know, it's just so proud of and, and, and love. I mean, I love Outlander. I love community. You know, I, I'm watching the blacklist mm-hmm. now that it's over with the current department. Um, every episode, it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it's really fun to watch some of the shows that you've been able to live in the orbit of, mm-hmm. be a, yeah, we, be a, you know, have some part yeah. of, uh, of, of, you know, have been able to live with it a little bit. It's so much fun to see them grow and mm-hmm. prosper. Yeah, we should do, like, the corporate shill part of this for a second. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I, and I did want to bring up, um, we had Brian Michael Bendis on. We did the thing in New York. That podcast has already gone out. But you were a, a big force behind getting powers to TV. And I know the fans yeah, were super excited about it. It's It was amazing. You know, we worked... Um, one of the very first calls I made as an executive when I started my job was Where's Powers? It was one of my favorite comic books yeah. of all time, and it was living in the feature land at the time, so we waited it out, and finally when we were able to get the rights for television, we, we grabbed them and worked with Brian on developing it, sold it to FX. It li- lived for years and years and years and went through a number of iterations there, shot a pilot, which yeah. you know, didn't, didn't work out, but we, you know, we continued to work and continued to work on it. And now it's living on PlayStation, which is really one of the first times that we've been able to do something for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I must say, it is a just a completely gratifying experience. The showrunners, Charlie Houston and Remy Obershawn, Brian Bendis, David Engel, those guys have been amazing to work with, and it is a, um, it's a true joy. I hope that when it finally hits the PlayStation airwaves, <laughs> that, it, um, that it will find an audience, because it really is a gem. That was great to hear. Yeah, I'm excited. I listen ice for a PlayStation for Christmas. Just so I can watch it. Um, very, very quickly, what have you had a hand in that is on television now? And I'll oh. ask this to both of you that oh. people should be watching, yes. or what is coming up that people should be watching? <laughs> uh, Anything you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I mean, the f- we had four dramas launched this fall um, that are all, that all got back nine orders, mm-hmm. which was great. So yeah, for that me, was, it was, that was Madam Secretary, which is on Sunday. Scorpion is on Monday. NTF New Orleans on Tuesday um, and Kevin Williamson show Stalker on Wednesday and we just um, had Nick Santora on yes I heard it was a lot of fun yeah that, that should have been the two-parter <laughs> that guy's great that's what he said too yeah <laughs> so funny. he's so, so funny. funny he's funny he's great um, and like a voice for radio he sounded, right? he sounded fantastic <laughs> he really does um, and, and, and then we have uh, two shows coming on I so when, when does this come January well anyway yeah. two, two shows one show that was with this with Sony that we developed oh gosh I can't even go through the entire story <laughs> but uh, but Vince Gilligan wrote it oh, right. called Battle Creek uh, back in 2001 um, and it is going on the air uh, this year so it'll go on the air um, you know this coming winter and it is awesome we've now seen 
Wow, gosh, where I sit, let's see, Curran has probably seen more, but I've seen seven episodes. It is phenomenal. David um, David Shore's running David it. David Shore's oh, running it. Uh, it's so it, wonderful. <laughs> it's it, a great show. It Good is a hear. great, phenomenal tone. Um, you know, uh, I just, I think it's great. And then we're also doing uh, CSI Cyber, which feels, mm-hmm. um, which is also really great and feels incredibly timely in a way that, um, Anthony Zyker talked about forensics being so timely when he pitched CSI and now he's back <laughs> doing cyber and he's like, oh my gosh, this feels incredibly similar to when I was talking about uh, And that's got forensics. a great cast too, yeah, which I'm, I'm excited to see. Yeah. What's going on? Um, very tricky for me because I um, have I've been at ABC Studios only for six months, so I, I have yet to sort of know what of my current development will, will actually yeah. um, uh, yield, but when I was at Fox, um, I, I would say, you know, the last couple of years, um, and even shows that are still about to premiere, Backstrom, Empire, right. I've had either a small or large hand in, depending on what shows we're talking yeah. about. I remember talking to you about Backstrom like two years ago. And that's something um, to be very, very clear. That's actually mm-hmm. something that was developed for CBS mm-hmm. um, with Hart Hansen, and um, CBS ended up passing. So I, I was very, very vocal about wanting that show at Fox. Um, and I was a, a huge advocate for acquiring it. Um, but beyond that, I actually had not been involved with the show okay. just because I left. Sure. Um, so I was I was very involved with um, the reshoots and and all of that. But then but then um, have not been there. But I, I think that that's a really marvelous show. And um, and and then Empire will be launching. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't have anything to do with Gotham. And then and then prior to that. Um, you know some things that are no no longer on the air, so I'm I'm not um, thrilled for one reason or another. But Rake and Almost Human, um, the following um, I worked on, and um, you know it's it's funny. I'm I'm at that stage in my career where the things I'm the most proud of are the things that were just the timing wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm curious to see what will happen now. But I I started at ABC Studios. I think it's such a marvelous time, and I cover Shondaland, and this is like the golden That's age cool. of Shonda yeah. Rhimes. So I'm excited to see what happens this next fall. Nice. Well, good luck to you. Uh, and all you guys, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, this ben. was a lot of fun. Thank I you. learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners will. Uh, let's do it again. <laughs> Shall we? Absolutely. <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com.